Hi, everybody. We are on season eight, episode six of the Practical Protection Podcast. And I have Lisa Balboa from Hanover Re with me. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Catherine. Good to be here. Lovely to have you back. And um, today we're going to be talking about how the insurance world is looking at technology to better understand people's health and well-being. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So Lisa, how have you been? It's been a little while since you've been on the podcast with us. Yeah, I've been keeping well, Catherine. So probably got a few more wearables since uh, the last time we, ah. we chatted. So I'm sure we'll be diving into that. And yeah, I've been on a few good holidays. So great to be back. Oh, fantastic. I do. So I'm very, very much thinking about Lucid. And uh, when we went to the Lucid conference and we met up and I remember you having a ring on as well. And you were telling me all about this ring and everything. And then I know my my husband was there, Alan. And um, and he was straight away like, oh, that looks great. You know, he's, he's a definite tech guy. So he was all over that and interested in it. Okay, then. So to start things off, you know, I know that you love technology. And just mentioning again, yeah, there was that ring that I know you said monitored your health. And, you know, I think it was you said that it even like gave you an early alert that you were going to be uh, that you were going to get COVID or that you had it and some really early symptoms. So I suppose a good place for us to kick off is what kind of technology is out there to monitor a person's health? What are we seeing in the market now? Yeah, there's a really wide range that's starting to be developed here. So the the wearables is the one that people think of classically, right? The, the wearable smartwatch that you have on your yeah. wrist. So I think I've had those for probably more than, than 10 years now. So the capabilities of those are quite interesting because it's now going beyond steps and tracking things like yeah. the, the heart rate, maybe even the blood oxygen sometimes as well. Yeah. And then you it mentioned like fall risks as well, I think, doesn't it? Yeah. So we wondered about that for my dad with Parkinson's, sort of like, is he is he taking a tumble? Can it alert us? Things like that, which is incredible. Yeah, that's a really incredible use case and great for the insurance proposition side of things as well, right? It gives great peace of mind for, for the family and then it can allow people to stay in their own home for longer, safe in the knowledge that if something happens, they'll get an alert to the, the family, the friends, the, the care team of that individual. So for the, the aging population, that kind of tech is being developed as well, which I think is really great. Uh, Absolutely. There's actually an interesting one uh, that I came across recently where, you know how in hospital people would maybe be monitored on those machines post-surgery for yeah. maybe a few days before they're able to go home. There's yeah. now some wearables where it's just a patch that goes on the back of the neck that might be able to replicate that sort of vital sign monitoring, but oh, allow wow. people to actually be in their, their own home to get that same quality of medical information, feeding back through to the doctor and the care team, but hopefully letting people be at home for longer as well. So there's some clinical trials ongoing with that as well around medical device certificate. That sounds, for that I was going to say that sounds absolutely amazing because I have to say I don't like the idea of being in hospital in a ward so the fact that I could maybe do something like that and just be like bye you know kind of thing that sounds fantastic to me but I remember it, it definitely has changed isn't it because I know when I started doing a lot of my fitness tracking and things like that I used to have it where I had like a heart rate monitor and it was a band around my chest which had like little metal thingies and I had to clip something onto it and and which was obviously fine in some ways, but as you say now, it's just it's just a watch, you know. Or like I think you said, you know, what, what does the ring do that you can potentially get? I mean, I'm sure there's a few, but what's what's the the main kind of ones? What do they do? Yeah, the 
The rings are another great way to track different health measures. So the one I have, it can track things like the heart rate. Also, the body temperature is one that was really useful oh, when I had COVID uh, probably more than a year ago now. But it actually detected just a half a degree rise in my body temperature. And then I, I knew to take a test and I found out I had COVID uh, oh. probably uh, a little bit earlier than I would have otherwise found out. So that kind of monitoring, particularly if you're wearing it, in your sleep. So when people sleep, they build up this baseline air of themselves. So yeah. something like a ring could be more comfortable than a watch to, to wear at night. So can really compare sort of those abnormalities in your sleep pattern compared to your normal baseline and then alert you to, to differences when you wake up. So I, I find that quite, quite helpful, right? Knowing if I'm ready to start the day, if there's anything I yeah. should look out for as well when I wake that's, up in the mornings that's really really good I was going to say I'm, I'm straight away thinking again about my dad because people with Parkinson's can lose their ability to temperature regulate so it would be so good because it means that obviously it could alert for things like that but I would say it's interesting when you're saying about wearing things at night because I'm I'm one of those people who's just like I'm like no technology near me you kind of thing so I think a ring probably wouldn't stand out to me too much but obviously a watch would do but you I remember as well when we were at the I can't remember if it was just before the conference or at the conference that you mentioned to me about a, a an app on your phone and I did it and I can't remember everything that it showed me but I obviously remember the most important thing was that it said that my skin was 10 years younger health-wise than I actually am so that's the, the main thing that I remembered but it was incredible because I remember there was a there was some imagery wasn't there was it I think you put it up didn't you about the way that it, it looks at the face and the different colors and things like that so can you take us through that kind of thing? Yeah, this transdermal optical imaging technology is really quite exciting, right? Because you don't need a wearable or a separate device. You can actually just use your your smartphone to get a lot of health information there. Yeah, even things as sort of more, I guess, lifestyle related, like yeah. the, the skin age, which is great as well. It's a great compliment. There's more important things, category. I was going to yeah, say. <laughs> priorities. Uh, so yeah, for, for sure, this sort of technology is quite quite an exciting development uh, as well. So it's the capability to track things like the heart rate uh, or the breathing rate just through this uh, video selfie. So just holding up the, the camera for 30 seconds and then it can track like the flow of blood through the skin and the algorithms have been developed to then use that to identify these, these different vital sign measures, things like the heart rate, things like the breathing rate, uh, even things like blood pressure and blood glucose are in development as well. So oh. that, yeah, it's really quite exciting potentials there, uh, you know, maybe yeah. even saving on some sort of medical testings or getting that, that first indication that perhaps something might not be, uh, you know, right or might be different for that that person on that day if they do that yeah. that face scan so that can really have quite a lot of potential and it doesn't need an extra wearable device it's accessible to to anyone with a smartphone absolutely and just sorry going on from there for people who maybe aren't familiar with some of the medical terms when we talk about blood glucose we're talking about things that can be indicating um diabetes you know pre-diabetes so being able to capture that really easily on someone's phone to just go right you know instead of having to have blood tests and things like that it's obviously massively going to save pressure on the nhs in terms of the tests and the resources for that but i think one of the things that we do know and i'm sure obviously you'll definitely know as an actuary is the amount of people who have these kinds of things like the high blood pressure or the, the raised gl glucose in the background and they're just completely unaware and obviously if you can catch it early you can sort of like prevent a lot of the long-term damage that they can cause to the body because I think I think a lot of people sort of think of 
you know, maybe high blood pressure. Sometimes I speak to people, it's just kind of think, well, it's just one of those things I've got to that age. And, and sometimes it is right that obviously blood pressure does change with age and things like that. But we do account for that. And obviously doctors account for that. But obviously if it is high blood pressure, then there can be real implications for like the kidneys and other organs and things like that. So it, it is so, so essential. So I suppose in the insurance world and for you as an actuary, why is InsurTech exciting? What could this potentially be doing to our industry? Yeah, I think there's lots of exciting opportunities. So that preventative healthcare approach that you were just talking about, you know, detecting those conditions a bit earlier and then people feeling confident feeling confident maybe to go to the the doctor to get that onwards diagnosis and treatment. That's a really exciting opportunity, right? We're almost empowering people in their day-to-day to have access to some indication about their health that they might not have seen before. And then, you know, have that confidence to get it checked out in the case that they they wouldn't have regularly gone to the doctor in any case. So from the insurance point of view, I mean, there could be good appetite to support that as well. So helping to manage what we would term sort of morbidity risk, so risk of ill health or mortality risk, which is risk of death. So to actually detect some of those conditions early on, that's great for for the insurer in terms of, you know, helping people live healthier and longer. So supporting, managing the claims ratio for the insurer and most importantly, supporting customers day to day as well to improve their health. I was going to say, it's really interesting because I love the way that you said that as well, because I've had it for the majority of people when you explain stuff like this to them, absolutely get it. But I've definitely had it. So it's interesting potentially for advisors to just hear sorry, my experience explaining some of these things to people, where sometimes you get people going, oh, so the insurers will do anything, won't they, to just try, you know. And it's just like, no, they're actually they're taking steps to try and really help you with your, it's not trying to avoid a claim. It's not trying to avoid different things like that. And ultimately for you as an individual, it's much better if you don't get to this level. So, you know, it's it's a really, really positive thing for everybody involved. So obviously really, really great to, to see that we're going to have that preventative side of things. So in terms of where we think it might sit, do we think that I imagine it might come a little bit into underwriting sometimes policies, but do you think it's more going to be sat within the once the policies are live that we're then going to have you know stuff like the things of saying like maybe a prompt from the insured said you don't want to just double check things and if your readings are like this or showing this we can point you to the good place to get support where where do you think it's going to sit yeah so i think first of all the the data privacy the data consent the, the choice of customer for for when and how they want this to be used is very important so in the preventative space i think to to have that post policy issue and to partner with companies that are experienced in that health space to really take the lead uh, backed by the the insurer to then support customers here. That's then a great opportunity because it will make very clear to the, the customer that this technology is being used to help live healthier and longer, can help complement the, the services available and things like the NHS as well, right? So sort of yeah. supporting people at that stage before they would go to the the NHS so to have that opportunity to have the synergies with the healthcare system there and think how this will will fit in is yeah. quite important i think there's uses for the for underwriting as well so from the insurance point of view if people would normally need to go for traditional medical screenings and have you know that time with with a nurse to have some tests taken mm-hmm. maybe as this technology develops more and starts to get the right kind of medical certifications in terms of detecting things like the high blood pressure which might be a common uh, nurse screen at the moment then you could also look at opportunities there right how can we make lower barriers when it comes to the medical underwriting so helping to support 
testing it at home for more people uh, as well using this technology that we might have available. Fantastic. So as an actuary, how do you see this InsureTech kind of helping to build the data that you need to be able to work with? I mean, obviously, I've never seen the data that an actuary would see. I imagine it's absolutely mind-boggling, um, the amount of data and different things and cross-referencing that you guys need to do. So so we can do all this to kind of like really help people. So, But what's it going to mean in the background into those decisions and different things that you'll be making to, to obviously advise and guide an insurer? So as you can imagine, with this sort of digital data, there's a really high volume of data that would be available as people maybe wear that wearable, go about their daily lives, or even from something like that, that video selfie where it's giving this def different data input. And also things like electronic health records are coming online more and more. I know for myself, I can see my own health record back to when I was born now in the, the NHS yeah. app uh, and my father as well. Uh, he could also <laughs> see it, right? So I think it's really starting to, to onboard. There's more, more to do, but starting also to get sort of health data in an electronic format as well. So the, the key challenge then is to really structure this data in a way that can be helpful to to underwriters, also to actuaries when it comes to looking at overall mortality and morbidity risks. So I think there is a role for insurtechs there as well, right? To assist with this data management, to create a customer view across all these different measures. Whereas yeah. before, maybe it was sort of a more limited set of measures at point of underwriting. Now there's also this lifestyle data that could be brought in, could be for underwriting, but could also be for in-force management, helping those people live healthier and longer or also for claims so perhaps with something like the electronic health record if that's able to link through to an insurer in the future to validate that claim that might then be less paperwork that a customer might need to fill out at point of claim as well if some of that could be auto populated from a health record oh that would be good you know especially just I think anything we can do to the claims process, so, you know, because that's that's obviously where people really feel the most vulnerable and most emotional and uh, anything we can do on that sounds absolutely fantastic. So in terms of, you know, I can see that technology is going to be helping get the data to support actuaries and that that's then going to support underwriters to make the decisions about assessing claims and things like that. But I suppose in the wider impact for society, say the, the this technology can often alert people to the hidden um, conditions that are going to be developed. They can go to a doctor early. I know we mentioned this a little bit before, but as we say, it is just a good thing all around, isn't it? It's it's making sure that, you know, insurers have like, obviously that, because insurers work off data. I don't think there's any way that we can avoid that. You know, it's, it's decades worth of data and this is just going to give more and more to give that really broad understanding of society as, as, as much as a whole as possible. But it can only be a good thing, can't it? That's right. Catherine, so I think to demonstrate that potential sort of beyond underwriting, there's a an example, for example, in the genetic space, right? It's very clear in the UK, insurers have, have subscribed that they're not going to use any sort of genetic testing, uh, except for one, uh, one small exception around the Huntington's yeah. disease. Uh, they're not going to use that for underwriting. So then sort of taking that off the table, you can then think, what could opportunities for predictive genetic testing be? actually to help people live healthier and longer. So, you know, could there be opportunity? And we're already starting to see some providers that are doing this, uh, partnering with insurance companies to offer some predictive genetic tests that can help people to understand their own risk of certain conditions. It could be risk of certain types of cancer, 
could be risk of certain types of cardiovascular disease. Yeah. So to then join that up and say, for example, if someone's at risk of of a certain cancer, maybe let's say bowel cancer as an example, maybe they should then get screened slightly earlier than the normal age that the screening program would start. So it's about that early diagnosis and perhaps being a bit more targeted in terms of who would go for screening when based on some of these genetic risk factors. Another good example would be the the cardiovascular disease. So if someone's at higher genetic risk of that, maybe they can make lifestyle adjustments to diet and exercise to offset some of that. Maybe they have their blood pressure screen more regularly, maybe even using some of these smartphone apps that we've been talking about as well, right, to to keep that monitored. So it's about empowering people to to help get the support they need to manage their, their health risks as best they can. And that sounds absolutely ideal. I was thinking in terms of the cardiovascular wellness, it's always a fun one to say, but the familial hypercholesterolemia, um, which for an advisor, I always recommend that you practice trying saying that a few times before you try and do it with a client or anyone else, because it's it's not a natural set of um, words to, to sort of say, but you know, things like that, you know, there's so many times that, you know, when you speak to people, it's like, oh, well, so how many people in your family have had high cholesterol? And you kind of sat there thinking, there's possibly a link here, you know, and um, and I know that we knew somebody personally who one of the, you know, there's so many implications in the sense that there was somebody who'd had a heart attack quite young that we knew. And we knew that someone else had been having some um, specific fertility um, problems in the family. And it was just that kind of thing, you know, for just sorry, gently suggested, does anybody check that side? Because it could really, you know, it can really fall into that and cause quite a few issues. And it, and it did end up being that there was that was there. Um, but obviously you can't just go around suggesting that to people. So I don't advocate that. It's just that, you know, we're very, very aware of this situation, very close to them. So we were able to, to have that discussion. Um, but, you know, in terms of like you're saying, the bowel cancers, things like that. So it's, it's identifying potentially the links for Lynch syndrome, um, other, you know, obviously genetic factors that can make that more risky. And I think what's important is that whilst we might be doing that at the moment, especially in assuming this wouldn't change, it can, in a sense, it can only still be a positive because, as you say, with the exception of Huntington's disease, where the insurers can ask about a genetic test for that, if it's over £500,000 of life insurance you're applying for, around 300000 for critical illness, they can't ask about the other ones. So that's something that we often see with quite a lot of people, especially with um, the breast cancer um, gene, the BRCNA gene. Um, people saying, well, I need to say, and it's just like, well, actually you don't. The rules are at the moment, you know, the majority of insurers, you don't need to say it. So, so whilst this is happening, and I think there's part of me as an advisor, I initially go, hang on a minute, are the questions going to change? So they can ask about it and things like that. And does that mean this is going to be negative? But from the way that it's all being sounding and, and the way that things are being kind of suggested is that it wouldn't necessarily be a case of, oh, if we find out all this, then it's going to affect future things. And I think I'm sure there'd be very careful data protection rules in a sense of, you know, oh, well, we can potentially offer you this enhanced testing, but we won't get the information maybe. I don't know. How would that work? Do you think the information would potentially go back to the insurer or do you think it'd be a bit of like a voluntary thing to say to allow it to go back? Are we so early stages that there's just no way of knowing? Yeah, I think where this has been implemented uh, with a few insurance companies, uh, you know, in, in Europe, in the US, it's been done by providers that are very specialist providers and they they are the data owner for that, that genetic data, ah. right? So that genetic data doesn't get shared with the insurance company, but yeah. rather the insurer's partners with these companies to make clear that, you know, they're never going to see any of this genetic data. What they really want to do is to support the, the customer to understand their yeah. own risks. And then with some of these providers, 
they can also collect things like the lifestyle data. So think the number of steps, maybe the the blood testing uh, information uh, as yeah. well, where that's applicable. So some of that more lifestyle type data, perhaps that could be shared back with the insurer to see, you know, are people yes. making a change to their lifestyle guided by the fact that they've had this uh, initial test, uh, but the actual genetic data in the cases I'm aware of, it, it's not shared back with the insurer, which can then yeah. give a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of confidence to to the customer that that data is not being shared with the insurer. It's really about embedding this more preventative yeah. healthcare approach to to support the customers, but to use the specialist genetic providers or health providers available to to enable that. Well, that sounds really good. I was going to say, imagine it's so. I suppose for me, if it was me, I'd be kind of like on the lines of if it was my test, it'd be a case of, well, I don't want them to be able to see that that test is to me. But I suppose if it's like a broad sort of like in all the people we've checked, 40% have this genetic marker or something, I suppose that would possibly be okay. You know, and obviously, as you say, that would help in terms of linking up with lifestyle changes and everything like that. I actually had genetic testing done not long ago. Um, And uh, I paid to get it done because uh, I was chatting um, to my mum and I'd known that my granddad had had a quadruple heart bypass and we were chatting around and she was just like, oh, well, you know, he always had bad cholesterol. And I just like looked at her, I was like, so he's always had high cholesterol. And um, and the reason that this really triggered it, it was after the Lucid conference and we were there and somebody was talking about it and they mentioned about these little globules that you get near your eye if you have high cholesterol. And I'd come home and I'd looked at my mum and because she's had something near her eye for a while and the doctor said, oh, it's fine, don't worry and everything. And I was looking at her, I was just like, well, I was like, it's okay. I was like, I was like, I just wanted to double check your eyes that there's nothing cholesterol either. And she was like, oh, well, they have told me that this is cholesterol. At which point I just went, oh my word. Right. You know, I was like, that's it. I said, I need to have genetic tests done. So we need to rule out that popular word, familial hypercholesterolemia. And luckily my genetic test came back. It was cancers. It was cardiovascular. It's all come back completely. No higher risk. So touch wood. I'm very, very happy about that. So, and it did give like a real peace of mind. I think, especially with the line of work that we work in. <laughs> it really gave me peace of mind obviously it doesn't say that it's never going to happen it just means I'm not as likely to develop it so okay as we're getting towards the end of the podcast then this is going to be a really tricky question for you I think because I know that you love tech and I know you love the gadgets but if you had to choose one piece of insure tech and I don't know let's say you had I don't know a million pounds and you could throw I mean, I assume it takes a lot more money than that. But, you know, let's just say a million pounds and it's the greatest amount of money in the world. And you could throw it at a certain piece of tech to really give it that chance to become popular, to do everything that we're wanting it ideally to do. What would it be that you would really want to see? Yeah, for me, I think it would be empowering people to have their own centralized personal health records. So there's so much different data out there, right? There's this genetic data. Yeah. There's sort of the the data that you get when you, you see the doctor that's being generated in some sort of medical record. There's this lifestyle data where, you know, things like the, the ring that I have, it tracks the temperature or, you know, you can track things like the steps or the, or even the heart rate with these video selfies. So just some way to get that in one central view i think would would be great right it's great for the the customer because they have that in one place and also i guess from the insurance point of view uh, i mean personally i wouldn't mind to then share that with an insurer right particularly if they could help me sort of get products that best fit my needs if i might be at risk of of certain things or if they could support this preventative healthcare approach if you know i ever needed to claim on a policy it was there kind of ready for for that claim to be paid out i think that would be quite exciting so kind of building up that 
all that data in in one place in a way that obviously protects the the customer's uh, data privacy as well and gives that choice to the the individual. I think that that would be Absolutely. where I'd like to to put some money uh, behind that if I ha- if I had some to to do that. <laughs> Absolutely, I was going to say I was just thinking from an advice point of view. I was just thinking, and I'm sure underwriters are exactly the same. Is just that thing of how nice would it be if when you needed to get somebody's details, they could just look and go here it is, you know, here's the letter from the specialist, I can access it. And it's all that would be amazing. It would just speed things up phenomenally, which would be fantastic for all of us. Okay, well, thank you, uh, Lisa, for coming on and talking and teaching us about InsureTechs. It's one of those things where I'm, personally, I'm a little bit of a technophobe. Alan is all about technology. And I'm kind of like, he wants to understand it like inside out. And I'm just there kind of like, I don't even want to know how it works. Just tell me how I use it. I'm fine with that kind of thing. Um, But it's really, really fascinating to just hear how much this could really, really help people. So thank you for for giving us that insight. My pleasure, Catherine. It's always a pleasure to to be on the podcast and share a few insights. So yeah, really pleased. Brilliant. Well, hopefully we can schedule one in, I don't know, maybe a year's time or so and see what's happened, see what the difference is, which would be uh, absolutely fascinating. So next time I'm going to have Matt Ram back with me and we're going to be talking about total permanent disability, which is a part of critical illness contracts, why it's there, why it's sometimes an add-on and how the claims work. If you'd like a CPD for listening to this podcast, please visit our website, practical-protection.co.uk and you get those certificates from the fantastic OCTA members who sponsor us. Thank you so much for your time, Lisa. Thanks, Catherine.